All right, good morning, Mercy Hill. If you don't, all right, you guys are awake, that's great. If you don't have a Bible, do grab one out of the aisles. There's Bibles on the tables on either side of you. Today we're looking at Psalm 121. I'm a little loud in the monitors up here, John. Um, Psalm 121 is one of my favorite psalms. I really encourage you uh, to memorize this psalm. That might sound... Um, like a difficult task, but this is a beautiful psalm, and if you will just read it over and over again, you will find that it just begins to come into your into your memory, and uh, it's not even very difficult to memorize. Uh, we are continuing looking uh, at the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. We're in this series entitled Time. And the psalmist begins in 121 um, by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills and then asking the question, from where does my help come? Now, I want to get your help this morning in interacting with this psalm or this song, and I want to really get you involved. So I'm going to have you talk in church. I know that's uh, not something we normally do today. We're going to encourage during our gathering um, that we would talk because we are the church and we can talk. So here's the question I want you to answer. Name a problem that causes you to look for help. Name a problem that arises in your life that causes you to look for help. Turn to a neighbor and share that problem with them. All right, what'd you find out? What are some problems that arise in life that call, uh, causes you to look for help? What'd you learn? Shout one out. Medical. Yeah. What else? Money. Parenting. Traffic. Finding a job. Yeah, absolutely. Lost in a cave. That'll do it to you. Man, that one takes the cake. Well, except for mine. Whenever I have plumbing problems, I cry out for help. When I go, I don't understand what's going on with, if we have a plumbing issue, I'm like, I don't do plumbing. And I call Jeff. Or, or there's one more in my life. You, do you hear that knocking? Do you hear it? Do you hear that rattle? Do you hear that whine? If we have a mechanical problem with our car, I don't do cars. I call for help. Those are the two areas where plumbing and mechanical with cars, I need help. Now here's the next question I want you to answer. And this one's a little tougher, okay? So turn once again to the person near you. Where do you go when you need help? Now it doesn't have to be just a specific problem that we brought up earlier, but when you need help, where do you turn? Feel free to be as vulnerable as you want. Or if you're not into this whole Jesus thing, go get a cup of coffee. <clears throat> go. Where do you turn when you need help? Okay. What did you hear? Not that this would be what you would do, but you have a friend, and your friend would go where when they need help? Google. Google. Amen. I can't tell you how often... Takesha. Takesha lived with us for a year. How many times did you ask me a question and what was my response? I don't know. Google it. <clears throat> Where do you turn to when you need help? I pray because I have nobody else to ask. 
prayer. Amen. Friends. Parents. This one's a little tougher, isn't it? It's not tougher because we don't know where we turn. It's a little tougher because we're not sure we want to share with everyone where we turn. Right? I mean, honestly, I'm a fixer. And so I know where I turn when I have troubles. Uh, I try to fix them. And it's just kind of a natural tendency within me. I Honestly, I look to myself, and I try harder. Uh, I have a tendency to try to get better organized, to be more efficient. I'm a learner, and so I'll buy a book on something. <laughs> I don't know how to fix it. I'll educate myself. I'll Google it, as someone has said. Now, I'm afraid that some of us are as good old red-blooded Americans, at least, have taken Benjamin Franklin's mantra a little too far. It's Franklin who says, God helps those who help themselves. I'm sorry to burst some of your bubbles. That's not in first quotations of the Bible. Okay, That's Benjamin Franklin. It's not found in the Scriptures. God helps those who help themselves. If we're really vulnerable for some of us, uh, asking for help seems more like weakness than a strength and the good old American way of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. I mean, if we have to ask for help, that's not losing the war, but it definitely feels like we're waving the flag of surrender sometimes. Anybody with me? I mean, my middle son, for some reason, always says, why don't we just ask someone? And I'm like, why don't you just shut your mouth, okay? We're going to find this on our own. We don't need any help. I don't say that, but it's what I'm thinking, right? Because it's naturally what I tend... He's not in here, is he? Good. Okay, so he doesn't listen to the podcast. We're safe. But it's just, I realize it's sinful. Like, I, God is teaching me through him, yeah, you should seek out a sales associate. You should look for help. But it's not what comes natural to us. I think especially for uh, us as men, we have been brought up to see this kind of a manly man has a kind of stoic personality that, that Winston Churchill type of never, never, never give up. And that's, I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? It makes for a great movie. I mean, culturally, we see people that we identify and we go, man, they never gave up. And I want to be like that. It worked for Rocky. I mean, that dude got his face pulverized so many times. It worked in Rocky 1 and Rocky 2 and Rocky 3 and Rocky 4 and Rocky 5. They're still making Rockies. He's like the granddad today and it's still working. That dude get his face pulverized, never give up. And he doesn't even win sometimes. And we walk away going, man, Rocky, he's awesome. However, the truth is that God does not help those who, helps, who help themselves. God helps those who know they need help. And he helps those who ask for it. Matthew 7, 7 says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Today, I want to talk to you about what it means to find rest in the gospel. To find rest in the gospel. Now, last week, we looked at work, and today I want to look at rest. 
Um, oftentimes when we think of rest, we think of it kind of like f- vacation. And for many of you, we're coming off fall break. And so uh, there's several of you who have punished us by posting pictures from the beach on social media. And we've been forced to see your trips this last week. Thank you for that. We love you. Um, as we've looked at your vacations to the beach, the only thing that we've sought refuge in is the fact that we know when you get back, you'll actually be tireder than we are. Because we all know that when you go to the beach, you need a vacation from your vacation. Amen? Yeah? Do you know what? Like, I want to talk today about living a life, not of rest, but a life that is at rest. And there's a difference. Because vacations, as important as they are, and as much that they offer to us in making memories and getting away, and that can be helpful, they also don't bring the type of rest that we would desire. And they honestly aren't practical for the world. I mean, think about if that was the application of today's sermon. Go and find time to take vacation. How would that work for the people of Haiti? How would that work for people who are in third world countries? Go find time to take vacation. That that doesn't work. But I want to speak today about not a life of rest, but a life that is at rest. Rest. Look in uh, verse 1 of Psalm 121. The, the writer says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And he asks the question, from where does my help come? Now, living a life that's at rest, hidden within this first verse, is the most important step. Any counselor that you would ever meet with, any pastor that you would uh, meet together seeking to bring about change in your life, we would all acknowledge that hidden in verse 1 is really the secret to the first step of many along the journey. But if you don't take this first step, you'll never begin the journey. I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? The author is actually acknowledging his need for help. The author of this psalm is saying, I need help. Just like the AA movement has made famous the 12 steps, the very first step is For Alcoholics Anonymous, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And so we see that the psalmist from the very beginning is acknowledging his need for help. His pride is no longer at the forefront. He is facing the fact that there are circumstances in front of him that are greater than his strengths, greater than what he can move On his own. And he admits in needing help, yet he looks to the hills. What's the significance? I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, there's a couple of different options that could be taking place here. Is the psalmist saying, I lift my eyes to the hills because I'm on my way to worship in Jerusalem and I'm on a pilgrimage and I look up to Jerusalem? I look up to the tabernacle. I look up to the temple where the presence of the Lord dwells. That could be a possibility. I believe more likely he is saying, I lift my eyes to the hills, and then he's asking, from where does my help come? I think the psalmist is probably making reference to the high places of worship that were found all throughout the Canaanite religion. The Israelites were constantly being pulled back. If, if, our, if we're not experiencing rain, our crops are dying, then we go up to the high places and we sacrifice to the, to the little gods the little G gods of, uh, of the uh, gods of the rain, and we pray that it would rain. We go up to the high places in order to worship. No matter which interpretation it is, uh, 
the viewpoint is the same. The point is this. There is a natural tendency for us to look up for help in times of need. There's a natural tendency for us to look up for help. But the question is this. Who are we looking to? And what are we looking for as we look to help? In verse 2, the writer acknowledges, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121 is a call to those who are disregarding God. It's a call to those who are gazing all around for remedies to our troubles rather than looking to the Lord. As you think about Psalm 121, isn't it amazing how prideful our hearts can be? Have you noticed within your own heart how oftentimes uh, our view is not to fall to our knees, but our view is to say, I had nothing left to do but pray, which acknowledges the fact that we've tried everything else. Where do you look to help? Where do you look to for help in times of need? Oftentimes we will look to our spouse, we'll look to a significant other. We'll look to our careers. Think about how often in times of need we just work harder or we go and we say, I just need someone to vent to. Sometimes we'll look to food and drink. Man, it's been a rough day. I'm going to stop by and get some ice cream on the way home. Has anyone ever done that? Did you know ice cream could be an idol in our lives? If we look to it in order to bring significance, in order to change uh, the direction of our heart. I wonder how many shopping trips to Target have been the result of looking for help. Man, I had a bad day at work. On my lunch break, I'm just going to stop by Target. I came out with five things and I only really needed one of them, toothpaste. And these other four, well, I feel a little better. It's amazing how often we can look to other things for help. Shopping, sometimes we look to the future. The danger can be not acknowledging God's presence in today. I can't, I can't describe to you how many people I speak with who talk about moving. They're going to live, they have dreams of living somewhere someday. And that somewhere is not where they currently are. And they put their hope in where they might move and where God might take them. And the funny thing is, all the people who dream of always being there, God rarely takes them there, but the problem is they're never here. How often do we look somewhere else for our hope outside of the Lord? I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What a beautiful acknowledgement. The writer goes on to say, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. You would carry your, shore, your, sword, I'm sorry, your shield oftentimes in your left hand, and so your right hand would be unprotected. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. In order to wrap our mind around these few verses, there's three things that the writer is speaking of that are dangers for the pilgrim along the way. Now, we don't really understand pilgrimage. These men and women and children would be going, um, they, would, they would sing these psalms of ascent, these songs that they would sing in worship on their way up to Jerusalem 
three times a year during festivals. And as they went up, there were dangers that came along the way. Now, I can identify a little better with these dangers because I took my uh, oldest boys backpacking uh, this last week on Monday and Tuesday. And so we hiked in and set up camp. And there are real dangers that happen along the way. The first is you could step on a loose stone and roll your ankle. Now, for us, we think that's not a big deal. You just get a pair of crutches and, you know, we go to the we go to the ER. But it's a big deal if you're in the middle of nowhere. It's a big deal. Right, Britain? It's a big deal when you roll your ankle and you're on like you significantly slow your pace and your speed. If you go from two feet to one, we were not created to hop. That's for sure. And so the writer is bringing up these problems that can take place along the way. The danger of sun exposure. Think about this harsh climate that they were in. Walking with a lack of water, you could become faint with sunstroke. And then finally he speaks of what many have called moonstroke. He talks about the moon by night. It was thought of. Uh, in biblical days, that the same way that the sun's rays can, can harm us, that the moon's rays could harm us as well. That emotional illness can come uh, to someone who's hiking for a long way. They're under the pressure uh, of fatigue and anxiety. They could be all alone. And, and the moon could affect them emotionally. And the writer is speaking to these different dangers that come to the pilgrim along the way. And in verse 7, he says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What does the psalmist mean by that? Because if you look at verse 7 and 8 in a detailed manner, What does the psalmist mean that he will keep you? Because if we're talking about troubles, and if we're talking about difficult circumstances and hard times, at the first read, it seems almost as if verses 7 and 8 are some type of cruel joke. I mean, look at what he says. The Lord will keep you from all evil? From all evil? Really? If you've ever known someone who is diagnosed with the C word, cancer, then there's a real struggle to believe that God will keep you from all evil. I mean, if you've ever known someone who has lost a child, there's a real struggle to believe these verses. If you've ever visited a third world country, then maybe you've questioned these words on a mass scale. Really? The Lord will keep you from all evil? But the key comes in seeing things from God's perspective, not from our perspective. I love the line that we sang earlier that God is greater than our hearts and that he's given us the mind of Christ. See, we need a God who's greater than our hearts because our hearts can't be trusted. Our hearts are emotional and our hearts are flighty. And we tend to judge God by our circumstances and we tend to see uh, the world and history from our limited perspective, which is minuscule at best. But when we see things from God's perspective, which is all of eternity, outside of time, all of a sudden Romans 8 begins to echo forth and to ring true in our lives that the Lord works all things together for good. Even the things that we question, even the things that we don't find good in, 
we can trust that God works all things together for good. You say, how could God work death for His good? You'd be surprised. It was said early on, who was it, Tertullian, who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You say, how could God use all these men and women who stood boldly and they were burned to death? They were died of all these cruel causes. How could God use them? And He used their lives in order to fan the flame of the gospel. God uses our lives. And He uses all things together for good. When we're able to step back and see His perspective, the Lord will keep us, the writer says. When we look at our lives and we feel like, is the Lord really keeping us? Is the Lord really with me? The writer is promising that the Lord will keep us for all of eternity. Not just in this moment, but for all of eternity. And that no one can take our lives from us. Martin Luther expressed it well in his hymn when he said, And and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who keeps us. Now, how do we apply Psalm 121 to life in the everyday? To the problems and circumstances that we face today when we look from our perspective and feel as if the Lord is not on our side. That the Lord is not keeping us. Because there are often times that serve as what I would call ironic blessings because they point us to God. See, when we go through seasons of difficulty, and by the way, church, we meet seasons of difficulty at every corner. There's the old African-American preacher who said uh, that we're either going into a storm or either in the middle of a storm or we're coming out of a storm and we're facing another. There are always storms around us. Think about it. How hard are the teenage years? I've got teenagers right now. The teenage years are great and the teenage years are difficult. How difficult is it to be single? Some of you right now, you're struggling with singleness. And you say, this is, feels like the most difficult time in my life. Great friend that I uh, planted a church with in Nashville. Um, he, he was really honest with me during some of his times where he struggled with singleness. And he said, I would just, and this was a strong kid. He grew up in Bogota, Colombia, a missionary kid, loved the Lord. He said, I would just walk out at night sometimes. Just in despair, just in depression, just wondering, am I going to be alone for the rest of my life? And I would look up to the stars and I would just cry out to God and say, is this all you have for me? Singleness is difficult. God's called some of you to be single. And for others, you're in this kind of holding pattern in which you're just waiting. And you're waiting on the Lord and you're tempted to take things into your own hands and go to make something happen rather than waiting for God to bring someone alongside you that you would run hard after God and in your running that you would look to your left or your right and you would see someone else who is running hard after God and that God would grant you through His grace marriage. And then there's the hard storms of marriage. And if you haven't met the hard storms of marriage yet, then you haven't been married long. Because marriage is really difficult. And it's difficult because we're people. And some people like to roll the 
toothpaste and some people like to squeeze the toothpaste and we like to fight over it. Marriage is difficult. We fight over a lot more than that. And it's difficult having kids. And it's difficult when they're crying in the middle of the night and we're changing diapers and then they become teenagers and we go, man, I could at least fix that, but now they're teenagers. And life is filled with difficulties. Where do we turn in the midst of the difficulties that we face? Where do you turn when you have a wayward child? Where do you turn when you have a wayward grandchild? Where do you turn in the midst of your difficulties? What do you do when you are helpless, when life seems out of control? The psalmist declares, we look to the Lord. See, Psalm 121 serves as a reminder that we as a people are not self-sufficient. Psalm 120 showed us that. That the world that is around us is not a safe place. And that we must look to the Lord. But as we do, as we look to the one who is creator and sustainer, the one who never sleeps or slumbers, Psalm 121 is a great promise to us. It's the wonderful assurance. He has promised to keep us and to offer us peace. And it echoes the most frequent promise in all of the scriptures. You guys know the most frequent promise in all of the scriptures, don't you? It's not, I will forgive you. I will be with you. Psalm 121 is an echo of the meta-narrative of Scripture that we've seen all along throughout this grand narrative. In the garden, God walked with them in the cool of the day and He promised, I will be with you. The tabernacle was the place where the presence of the Lord settled in a cloud and God led His people, cloud by day and fire by night. The temple was a place where God resided in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant where He was with His people. Jesus came in the form of man. Emmanuel, God with us. The promise of His presence through the end of the age is found as Jesus in His last words, I will be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. When I think about this promise of God, Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The promise is clear. The problem is me. Let me say it again. The promise is clear. The problem is me. God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We consistently unplug from Him and try to plug in to other things. We plug in to other things that are created rather than the Creator. We try to draw energy. We try to draw life. We try to find happiness. We try to find peace. We need a reminder in our lives to look to the Maker of heaven and earth. We need a reminder. Just If any of you saw the beautiful sunset that came up this morning, the sun came up and the clouds were in the sky and uh, the sun just seemed to radiate off the clouds. It was beautiful. Let the sun be a reminder to us not just that God's mercies are new every morning, but that the Creator is our sustainer of all life and that we would turn to Him. About four years ago, I began practicing another discipline that for me in my life helped to radically realign my heart and soul, that helped me to create a deep awareness of God. About four years ago, I began practicing Sabbath. I started taking a day out of the week in which I would just set aside time to spend with God. 
Time to be quiet. Time to set aside from work. I heard Eugene Peterson speak about Sabbath, and it came at a time in my life in which I was uh, about a year into planting this church, but I was about into year 11 or 12 of church planting, and I was quickly burning out. I mean, I was tired, and I, uh, we had a really small group of people at that time, and we had a lot of uh, dreams and a lot of mission and probably doing a lot more than we should have been. And I was at a point in which I was quickly losing my joy, and I was sensing that my soul was just shriveling, that, I, that preaching was no longer a joy, that there was a never-ending to-do list of ministry. And some of you remember, because you were a part of the church then, um, I wrote you a letter, and it went like this. It said, I don't think I can keep Sabbath on my own, and so I'm going to write you a letter and tell you that I'm going to take a Sabbath on Mondays. Because for me, my week was never over until Sunday was over. And so Monday became the day in which I just began to set aside time. And I made the promise to you, I said, if you'll give me Mondays and I'm not going to answer your phone calls and I'm not going to return your emails, if you'll give me Mondays, then I'll give you Sundays. And I promise that we will not fill your Sunday afternoons with uh, lots of work and lots of regular repetitive things that need to be done, that we will give you time on Sunday or whatever day of the week works for you. Some of you may say, I work regularly on Sunday. I leave here and go to a job or Sunday doesn't feel like work because I have to go grocery shopping and I have this list of to-dos to get ready for the next week. Well, then maybe there's another day that you would set aside. Maybe there would be a half day that you could set aside in order to rest. Eugene Peterson describes Sabbath in this way. He said, it's a time in which I shut up and it's a time in which I show up. What he means by that is, he said, it's a time in which I quiet my heart before the Lord. It's a time in which I seek to be in His presence. Now for me, um, I've practiced Sabbath in a lot of different ways. Uh, I get away and I unplug. That's the first thing. So I don't check email and I try not to check my phone. Um, I rarely answer a phone call on Monday. Um, I'll check my voicemail and see if it was important. Uh, And I don't think that I necessarily have a great rhythm yet that I've established in what I do on that day. But for me, uh, oftentimes it will look like sleeping. So I'll sometimes sleep in a little later. Um, I read. uh, I pray. I try to be quiet. My kids are in school. They're all in school and my wife is working. And so for me, I'm just, you know, the noise, only noise I hear is usually the dog. And that's fine. It's quiet. It's restful. Um, Sometimes maybe once a month or so, I'll go and watch a movie in the afternoon. Um, Sometimes I'll work at a hobby. uh, And then later in the day, family gets home, and it's a day that I can intentionally spend time with my kids and know that I'll be there. And I could help them with homework and give my wife an opportunity to have a rest. But Sabbath has become something that's not legalistic. It's something that that isn't a binding uh, covenant from the Old Testament. It's it seems Paul referred to it as more of a ceremonial law, and uh, he looked at it in looking at the Ten Commandments. It's the only one that he pulled out and described as a ceremonial law. Yet Paul continued to keep Sabbath. See, Sabbath points to a future reality that's fulfilled in Jesus. Yet we still need that reality today. We need to be reminded of the rest that God offers us, the rest that comes through Jesus. 
And it goes all the way back to Genesis 1. It's really interesting. I want you to think about it from this perspective. We were made on the sixth day of the week. And what did Jesus do? What did God do on our very first day, which was his seventh? He created us on the sixth. And then on the very first day of our week, he brought us into rest. See, we have it opposite. For most of us, we say, I'm working for the weekend. I'm working so I can rest. We work hard so we can play hard. But that's not the way in which God designed us. God designed us to rest in order that we might be prepared for the work that He has called us to. And for most of us, we need to learn that we are designed to work from our rest, not to rest from work. After a busy day of being created, God told us to chill, to hang out. He wants to do His work of recreation in us. And it's essential that there be rest before there's work. That there be abiding in Him in order to be fruitful. John 15 tells us that. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me will bear much fruit. He that abides in me will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Most of us don't believe John 15. We just flat out don't. Our lives reveal it. Our lives reveal that we think that apart from God, we can do everything. Yet, the Sabbath reminds us, this is the key to the Sabbath. If there's anything, this is, write this down. The Sabbath reminds you that you are not God. May we be a people who are reminded that we look to the hills from where our help comes. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Rest comes through abiding in Jesus. We need to regularly be reminded that Jesus is God and we are not. We can rest because He is the one who never slumbers or sleeps. We can rest because He has accomplished the work and the Father has already declared us righteous because of Jesus' work on the cross, not because of ours. And we can rest because Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. And He promises to keep us in our going out and coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the rest that You offer us, the eternal rest that comes through Jesus. Father, we thank You that In that rest, we find peace. That in that rest, we find joy. God, I pray that we would be a church who learned the discipline of abiding in you. That we would be a people who trust you enough that we would rest. God, that we would be reminded that you're the one who never slumbers and never sleeps, and therefore we can sleep in peace because of your work that was done on our behalf. God, I pray that you would help us trust you. God, I pray for individuals who are here today who, in the sound of my voice right now, are, have, they're under conviction because they realize that they've looked to the hills for help and that they haven't looked to you. God, that they've looked to people and relationships and things. Father, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, bring about a kind of joyful conviction and repentance that draws us back to you. 
in which we see the peace and the joy that comes in resting in Jesus, in crying out to you, Lord, in resting in your work alone. God, for those who are much like me, who have busy hearts, who seek to please you through our works, God, may we be reminded that we are not God, that we can rest because of Jesus, and that we can find our hope and our thankfulness and our joy in you. God, you're greater than our hearts. Thank you that you've rescued us from our sin and even from ourselves. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.